Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kirk Blanchett. Kirk is the CFO and VP of Strategy at Huber Engineered Woods. Kirk has two children at Davidson Day and is on our board of trustees where he chairs our finance committee. I meet regularly with Kirk and he is one of my most trusted mentors and advisors. So Kirk, thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, I was born and raised up in New Hampshire, fairly normal, what I'll call middle-class childhood, had two working parents. When I was younger, I loved all things sports, and you could always find me outside doing something. I think as I grew older, I kind of grew into being more of a a student and someone interested in school, but certainly was a late bloomer there, and uh, much to my parents' chagrin. I started working when I was pretty young. I was 14. I got my first job at a local country club. No one in my family played golf. I didn't even play golf really at that time. And it was just you know something I could do to make make a little bit of money when I was younger. So started working there and, and that's how I took up the game of golf, which little did I know then how much of a role it would play in my life, fast forwarding to today. So the town I grew up in did not have its own school. So the, we went to some public school and, and went to high school in the city near us, Manchester, New Hampshire, and probably similar to Huff High School here locally. I probably had 600 kids in my class and 2,400 kids in the school and, you know, enjoyed it. I mean, I, I uh, tried to take it all in and, and, and get involved in as much as I could and met my wife there. She was she went to the same high school. Oh, I didn't did. know that. Yeah. So we, uh, we met and uh, started dating when I was a senior in high school and she was a junior. And obviously that, that worked out uh worked out well for us. So uh, it, it was it was good. I, I loved everything about New Hampshire. You had access to the outdoors, uh, whether it was the mountains or the beach. And I think that's a part of kind of who I am today. I love being outdoors. I love, uh, you know, doing outdoors things. So definitely uh, would do it again. It's a great place to, to grow up as a, as a, as a child. And uh, North Carolina is a great place to raise a family too, but uh, definitely think of those days fondly. And you mentioned the role that golf played in your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was interesting. I, uh, I, I started playing. We couldn't really afford lessons, so I kind of was homegrown, self-taught, you know, picked up some things from kids I worked with and, and played with a little bit. And I just, I love the game. It was outside. You are competing against the course. It's a game, you know, like, like many others that you just almost can't win. <laughs> uh, so the challenge is always there. And, you know, I was always relatively small growing up and had a passion for football. My best friend, uh, his father, uh, played professional football. And, and I remember getting uh, pulled aside by his father, who was like a second dad, at, you know, in some ways to me and said, Hey, you know, you're, you're not going to be playing football. And it was devastating. But he's like, you know, you, you're a tiny little guy. I don't want to see you get hurt. And, um, you know, golf for me was, a, it was an interesting backstop because it was the same season as football and I needed to try it out for the team and made it. And, um, you know, just really fell in love with the game and, and all the life lessons that come with it. And, Played through high school, played a little bit in college, kind of gave that up for for studies and academics, but uh, but really enjoyed it. And then it was something that Jen and I both did. She grew up in a family that played as well, um, so it was something that we could do together. And when we had kids, uh, when they were old enough, you know, we we got them into the game. So uh, you know, when you think about COVID and all the restrictions and mm. all the 
golf was one of the few things you could actually do. Yeah. Uh, and we were able to do it together. So it was a bit of a, a, a saving grace for us as a family to get out and do those things. So whether it's work functions or just the family side of it, it's paid a lot of dividends to me. It's a sport I've enjoyed to, to stay close to and, and frankly taught me a lot of lessons over time. Yeah, I played many sports growing up and my dad was is still like a sports fanatic. And for a couple of years, we did a whole range of different things. Like he flew glider planes. I learned how to fly glider planes. But one of the things he picked up for a while was golf. And I remember some of my fondest memories with, with my dad was those early mornings in Australia in the summer. I haven't played much as an adult. How old were your kids when they started playing golf then? They were pretty young. Uh, we we got them involved in lessons um, maybe a couple years after we moved here. So Alexis was probably uh, seven. Andrew might have been five. Uh, and it was pretty low level at that at that point. And you know, over time, they, they got more involved and more into it. And, and we're fortunate at River Run. They've got a good junior program. So they've been able to really uh, dig a little deeper into the craft over time and um, and, and really get to experience not only the, the practice side and the mechanical piece of the game, but also get more involved in tournaments around North Carolina, South yeah. Carolina, and, and, and see the competitive side. And, and now Alexis plays for both the varsity and middle school team, and Andrew's at the middle school level. So they've got tryouts this week, and they're excited and looking forward to another good season. That's awesome. You attended Babson College, which is widely known to have the number one undergraduate school for entrepreneurship. Growing up, what helped shape your interest in finance and entrepreneurship to attend Babson over other colleges or universities? Boy, I wish I could claim some kind of forethought, uh, Pete. <laughs> you know, I, I think there is some elements in life of, of being lucky rather than good. For me, we were fortunate. Despite it being a, a large public school, I had access to uh, a couple business-oriented classes in high school. One was an accounting class and one was a business law class. And I actually found myself gravitating towards both of those. And unfortunately, when I was a, a, a child, there, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities to learn about careers or occupations outside of kind of what your families did or what your friends' parents did. And I had a friend whose father was a partner at one of the big four accounting firms, and I got to know him. I knew I liked the accounting class. I knew I liked my business law class. So my head was oriented that way. I also had a, a little bit of an interest in the stock market and how it works. So, you know, I was looking into business schools, probably didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, when I entered Babson, I was looking at other, you know, business schools in the area and thought I was going to be an accountant. I mean, I went in with that idea that that's going to be my major. And, you know, fortunately for me, Babson was an eye-opening experience. Uh, it was a very dedicated college to undergraduate business programs, and it had a very large breadth of opportunities there. And, and as I started my studies there, I started getting exposed to things like finance and investments, economics, you know, a, a much broader range of things that I continued to, you know, find a lot of interest in. And, you know, over time, it was probably my second year there. I said, I do like accounting. I like the science of it. But there's other things that I'm, I'm starting to gravitate a little bit more towards. And for me, it was finance and investments. And that ended up becoming a double major for me there. But for Babson, as you mentioned, uh, they've done a tremendous job. I, I always say it's a small school in the backyard of giants uh, <laughs> up in New England with some of the best colleges and universities in the, in the country. You know, they were able to carve out a niche for themselves. They were very entrepreneurial focused. The teachers were amazing. The school had some forethought and said, look, you know, we're not going to 
ask you to publish a lot and populate their staff with a bunch of doctorates. Uh, what they said is, look, we, we're going to take practitioners, people who have got good experience in field, whether it's marketing, uh, finance, you, you know, accounting, and we're going to ask you to be available for your students. Yeah. You know, we want you to spend the time you otherwise would be publishing and researching uh, with them and help educate them. So it was a very hands-on, practical experience. Certainly entrepreneurship was integrated into the curriculum early on. I mean, I think I was there two weeks and they were teaching us how to do a resume. <laughs> which is a 17, 18 year old, you're, you know, scratching your head saying, what am I going to use this for? Everything you did had that kind of tone or overture to it. And, and every uh, student didn't graduate without starting a business. And it could be as simple as a, a late night cookie delivery company while kids are studying. It was just a neat experience at a very young age to kind of see how businesses work and to be challenged in that way. And I think it does instill an entrepreneurial spirit that you carry with you uh, and it certainly carried with me and some of the decisions I made later in my career, what I gravitated toward. It's a great school that at the time, nobody really outside of New England knew much about. I think they've done a better job kind of getting their brand and image out there. But, you know, as you mentioned, they continue to do well in those rankings as, as it relates to entrepreneurship. And, and what was your business that you and your fellow students developed? We did that midnight snack company. Oh, that was so, you. Yeah, we... Uh, it was more than cookies, but we would deliver cookies, warm cookies uh, that were baked that evening, uh, milks. We also had candy and other things. So as kids were in their dorm room working hard away, they didn't want to go down to the local convenience store area. They could just call us and we'd, we'd run by with some treats for them to enjoy while they were studying. So you know, it wasn't earth shattering, but what it taught us all as it relates to just how to run a business, how to work together, how to understand customer needs, how to meet those needs, the importance of, of customer service. So many different little things that, you know, you pick up. And it, it was a fun distraction for us in school and another way for us to kind of bond over something different yeah. besides studies. And switching gears, this is your third year as a trustee at Davidson Day. And what a three years it's been. Like, what inspired you to become a trustee? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I've served on lots of boards in, in my day, both on the business side of things and not-for-profits. And to be honest, I hadn't been thinking about it, Pete. And our kids have been here since, you know, as early as they could. And we didn't do a whole lot with the school in terms of giving back. Yes, we helped with, you know, being a classroom parent, but I never really got involved with the direction of the school and the strategy and, and was always pleased with it and didn't have, you know, issue, cause or concern. And one of my friends, a fellow parent, Allie, who was on the board, mm -hmm. really approached me and he said, hey, you know, I think you'd be a valuable ad here. This is something that you might be interested in. So I was at a good point career-wise. I had some some time to give it some thought and why I could dedicate some time to the school and met with a few other board members and talked to them about the experience and really saw it as an opportunity to, to add some value, to bring some of the things that I've been learning over the years to the equation. And, you know, it was, it was an interesting time in the school's history, right? We, we've been through a very disrupted period. It was, it was probably the early innings of that disrupted period and certainly was a challenge and still is a challenge today as we we work through the COVID issues and, and emerge from that. And now we can start focusing on maybe, maybe some longer term strategic views of, you know, who do we want to be in the future? And that kind of thing is what I've spent a career doing. I enjoy doing it. So for me, it, the stars aligned and it made sense to give it a go. 
And what's really interesting about f- being in schools, so I was started off as a classroom teacher in independent schools 20 years ago this year, actually, and then, you know, division head and now head of school is, especially early on, I had no idea what trustees did. I mean, you'd meet them at functions every now and then. And what's so interesting, and for people listening, is you play such a role in the success of our school. We meet monthly. I go to you for counsel. Rachel, our CFO, who's just this sort of giant at our school and does so much behind the scenes, like you've been tremendously supportive um, with her. And that's what's really interesting as my time in schools has evolved is just the how important it is to get trustees on the board like you who are generous with their time but also with their counsel and just who who are able to separate the parent role from the trustee role and just come in and like what is in the best interest of the school and so I want to take this opportunity to thank you you've been incredibly generous with your time since I've been here and it's it's helped me tremendously and so what do you love most about being a parent at Davidson Day I would say first and foremost that my kids love it here I mean, as a parent, that's that's yeah. what you want, right? You want your children to thrive and enjoy where they are and feel included as in, in part of a community. And, you know, where I went to school growing up, it was just a massive school, easy to get lost in the ebbs and flows of, of things. But, but they genuinely love it. And as a parent, if they're happy, you're happy. Yeah. And I think it speaks volumes to the culture. And that's what Jen and I really like. It's the culture here of what the school's mission and vision is and what they're trying to create. It's it's not all about academics. It's about the individual. It's it's creating well-rounded people that can add value in society and life. And, you know, as parents, we just feel very, very comfortable. When we first came here, Pete, we we were a little bit rushed. We, we, we got to find a school for our children. And we knew we were moving into Davidson and we were coming from Massachusetts, which has a fantastic public school system, one of the best in the country. And we were really concerned about where we sent them and we didn't know it. We came by Davidson Day and it was close and it seemed great when we did our tour, And but we didn't know. And, and our thought was, hey, let's try this and we'll figure it out over the next year or two and figure out where to send them. And from day one, I mean, not only the children enjoying it, I mean, we've just been so impressed with the faculty and staff and caring nature they have. And they are really what keep us coming back year in and year out. And, you know, I tip my hat to this school and to them for giving so much of themselves to the students here. You see how much they care, how much sacrifice there is. And we feel lucky to have found this school and, you know, can't see ourselves ever thinking of going anywhere else. I'm glad they have such a great experience here. I really wanted to speak to you today about strategy. You've been incredibly helpful to me about the way to think about the future and, and making choices. And I've found that, you know, strategy can be one of the most misunderstood terms. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So what was your journey from working in venture capital in the late 90s to working for Huber Engineered Woods? Well, I'll, I'll back up a heartbeat. So before I, I got into venture capital, my, I cut my teeth in my career in investment banking. You know, spent my time in, in both mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance, helping companies do IPOs and secondary offerings. So really helping them get funding. And it was an intense experience for me, but I learned a lot about business valuation. I learned a lot about you know, capital planning how to structure balance sheets and things that were, again, an, uh, an extension of what I was learning in Babson and the business background that I had and, and loved it. But as many of us do, you, you, you know, get called in different directions. And, and although I enjoyed the experience, was looking for a new one and, and found myself in, as you mentioned, in the venture capital space. Uh, and that was in the late 90s. So it was the heyday of all things internet. 
and uh, just a, the wild west of, of uh, technology and, and, and really business plans emerging, you know, uh, from the ground beneath you left, right and center. And uh, it was just a, an exciting time to be doing that. And for me, what was interesting, you, you learn a lot in investment banking, you learn a lot from bankers and, and how they think in, in its one way. And then I moved into this venture capital role, which was really staffed by a lot of ex-strategy consultants, people that are very used to looking at nascent businesses and industries and trying to pick winners and losers. So it was a great extension for me to get that experience, to be surrounded by people who think so differently um, and really challenge me to stretch my mind a little bit about how do you think of industries and business models and companies that have really no revenues, but, you know, aspirations to take over the world. And it was a, a great experience for me. I was surrounded by, again, that entrepreneurial spirit the, that we talked about earlier. And I enjoyed it. I spent time in Silicon Valley and seeing all these startups and how they're developing their plans and, and really challenged to th- sort through the deck and, and find those companies that are going to be winners. When I finished that up, I had about five years of what I felt like was really good experience, but wanted to get a little bit more uh, in terms of education and deep a little di- you know, uh, dig a little deeper in certain topic areas. So I decided to go back to, to business school and, and did that for a couple of years. And when I came out, I, I enjoyed the principal investing space of which venture capital is part of but wanted to work with companies that had a little bit more meat on them. And what that means or meant to me was companies with revenue and growth and customers. And out of business school, I moved into the private equity space, focused more on leverage buyouts, management-led buyouts, later stage investments, and small mid-market companies. And again, it, you know, you're surrounded. We focused a lot on family-owned businesses. We tried to pride ourselves on being good stewards there. And and and. But I, I selfishly got a lot of energy out of those folks. And and our ability to bring them and help them, you know, crack through ceilings that they were bumping their head against for mm. one reason or another. And sometimes it was succession planning. Sometimes they just needed more capital to grow. And in some cases, they just had outgrown their own um, business acumen and needed a little bit of help and guidance to to get to that next level. So I spent many years in the in the private equity space. Started at the lowest levels and worked my way up to be a partner at a fund. I started a fund, raised some capital with a few of my colleagues from a previous fund. We put it to work in investments and we're in the process of harvesting it and enjoyed what I did. I mean, it was very energizing. And it was right around that time, my partners who were older than I was had decided that they probably weren't at the age of 60 going to sign up for another 10-year endeavor, mm. uh, which is typical life of a fund from start to finish. So I was looking at you know bringing in new partners into that fund or moving into a different fund and... and uh, you know, it was, a, it was a tough time. We had literally just had our partner meeting to kind of start the discussions around what to do next. And I got a call from a, a recruiter and the recruiter said, hey, I've got a company you probably never heard of, uh, but I think it's interesting. And they're looking for a non-traditional CFO. In fact, they're looking for someone who can be the CFO and run their strategy efforts. And you know, I gave it some thought. I mean, I'd always been in the transactional space in my career, and this would be the first operating role I would take. And that was a bit daunting in and of itself to think about. But the role was aligned very well with what I had done. I spent a lot of years working with CFOs in our companies and their bankers and setting up their capital stacks and developing commercial plans, business plans, trying to help these operators uh, think through their issues and how they can be successful. So I'd done a lot of this stuff, and I thought it was a unique combination. The opportunity was in Charlotte, 
the recruiter had no idea, but both Jen and I had lived in Charlotte out of undergrad, so it was an area we knew. My parents had just retired to Charlotte <laughs> uh, up on Lake Norman, and um, Jen was working for Wells Fargo up in Boston, which was based in Charlotte. So our family was young. We were starting out and wanted to be closer to family. And so from a personal and professional standpoint, you know, the, st- the stars aligned for us. And and when I went down to meet the folks at Huber, I guess the biggest compliment I could give them, Pete, was I still had my private equity hat on is, is that I would invest in them. Mm. And I saw a lot of good things and it was tough because the housing recession was in full swing back in 2012. This is a company that got beat up like many others that played in the space. But there were enough green shoots there that I saw in terms of its brand, its channel strength, its innovation efforts. Leadership team was was very solid that, you know, I thought it was a, a great opportunity worth taking a shot at. And fast forward to today, 10 years later, time flies. Um, it's been a wonderful experience. We've We've done a lot of really fun and cool things with the business. And no real second guessing there. You are now the f- chief financial officer, as you mentioned, but also VP of strategy. Is that a unique role? I've never really come across someone who's had those sort of two titles before. It is in, in the way that Huber has constructed it, for sure. And I think the CFOs of old were, were much more disciplined and aligned around the finance function and, and the books and, and tracking those things. But as we you know move forward, it seems like more and more CFOs are being asked to be a right hand to president CEOs and and help think through strategy and help think through the financial implications of those strategies. And so, although my role is is a lot more dedicated to the strategy piece, it's a, a bigger piece than you might find with most CFOs. I do think there is a trend, you know, on most CFOs to kind of to get more involved and participate more in in strategy. Talking of strategy, I find the concept of strategy one of the most misunderstood terms. How would you define strategy? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, w- I would agree. You know, not to oversimplify things, uh, Pete, but strategy to me is a, is a fancy word for plan. Strategy is, at its core, to me, uh, it's a plan you use to to go after and achieve some target. And and for most, it's a vision and mission. Right, you start there. What do we want to be? And now, you know, once you figure that out, it's how do we get there? And and to me, strategy is the plan you use to get there. And and it gets much more complicated when you start peeling back the layers of the onion beneath that. But at its surface, that's that's kind of how I think about it. How has your approach to strategy evolved over the, your career? That's a good question. For me, it's building blocks. And and when I started, I was probably thrown in the deep end and, and being asked to help people think about strategy when, when I had mostly textbook experience with mm-hmm. strategy. There's lots of theory around strategy and you know, lots of strategy consultants out there with their two-box matrices. And early innings for me, I came in with that more academic view of strategy. You know, hey, you do X, Y, and Z and positive things happen. The reality is it's like studying economics, right? It's one thing to study in a book where you can hold all variables constant and move one, but the reality is all these variables are moving at the same time. And over time, you kind of realize that and you realize it's less of an academic exercise. And yes, there's parts of it that are, but there's also parts of it that are feel and situational. And I think you you build those building blocks over time as you get experiences. If I think about where I am today with it, I try to focus you know, real solidly on where the end zone is for us and think about the strategy 
you know, as, as that plan and, and how do you best build the plan to leverage your competencies, the things you're good at to be most successful. And I think where a lot of people sometimes, you know, go astray is they try and build a strategy that is everything to everyone. I mean, I think you've got to be really focused. You've got to stay close to your hip um, and, and try and move and pivot from points of strength uh, as you evolve uh, your, your strategy. So there is no one size fits all. I mean, you have to look at the business. You have to look at the environment it's in, the competitive landscape, where you are in your cycle. What's your best path and avenue to win? So I've been in independent schools for quite a while now. And one of the things that I've noticed, and you just mentioned, is that the desire to be all things to all people. And that has been a challenge in the different schools I've been in is sometimes I feel like the strategy is too broad. And as a result, you sort of inch your way forward. And there can be some fear around sort of letting some things go to really focus on what your core is. How have you helped businesses be comfortable with that, like letting some things go? Well, there's very good academic institutions out there like Harvard Business School that makes a lot of money on, on writing what are called business cases. And they're not writing cases based on a lot of successes, although some of them are, the majority of them are failures and learning experiences. And from a strategic context, as I was you know, reading a lot of these and going through school, I mean, you, you see threads and themes. And a lot of times where you know, companies and you can apply this to schools, sometimes go wrong, is that hubris, right? We, we're good at this. We can be good at anything. Um, and we should be good at, it, at everything. And if we, if we are, we're going to be that much more profitable or that much more successful. And time and time again, that's where most of these companies fall down. Um, you know, they, they try to be all things to all people. They usually start from a, a place of success, uh, you know, where it's really niched and focused and you know, I don't think in some instances they've done a great, good enough job figuring out why they were successful before moving on to being successful in the next thing. You really got to understand what were the causes of your success and, and what other skills might you need to be successful in these other areas. So that's another thing that people tend to lack when it comes to strategy. Like, let's go and be there yesterday. <laughs> um, I think a combination of... Uh, Humility and patience go a long way in strategy. And I think if, if it's meant to be and you're able to develop new competencies that allow you someday to, to serve the world, um, then great. But, but really be you know, uh, patient with that and cautious because I, I think it is, a, a, it is a pitfall that a lot of folks and companies fall into. So I've been learning a lot from our trustees as we move through a strategic planning process at Davidson Day. What do you feel are some of the most misunderstood aspects when it comes to creating a strategic plan for an organization? You mentioned patience. Yeah, I think, you know, humility and patience are, are core tenants. I, I think one of the biggest misunderstandings I find with folks is they think it's that it's static, mm -hmm. right? Strategy to me is a, it's a process. Mm. It's, it's never ending. It's ongoing. Uh, and when people talk about strategic plans, by definition, that should be something that doesn't sit on a shelf like a book. It needs to evolve. It needs to take current events into consideration because strategies pivot and they move. And as we you know talked about before, I think if you've got a good North star, whether it's your vision, mission, or, or just outright goal, mm -hmm. um, you know, that shouldn't be moving around a whole lot on you, but the strategy underneath it and how you get there might move. It might 
as circumstance change, the environments change. Maybe you develop or get a new competency that allows you to attack something a little differently. So it's it's really something that needs to be revisited often. It is a living, breathing thing. It's not a book on a shelf. What's been really interesting for me as we go through this process is I had a th- I thought I had a good understanding of strategy, having you know been through sort of different processes at schools, and we just happen to have some people on our board, you included, and others who have just a, a terrific background in strategy in different industries. And so as we've been going through this process, I've just been learning a lot. And I remember um, Holly, our board chair, said recently you know, strategies about making choices, sometimes they're hard choices. And Mm -hmm. I just, that, and back to what we were talking about before about being able to not be all things to all people, it, it seems it's such a logical step to say, this is what we're good at. This is what we're going to double down on. And this is what we're, is going to help our school continue to thrive and grow. But there is also a sense of grief when you might have to let go of certain things or not necessarily go in a direction that people were hoping you would go. Uh, we've talked in the past about some of the changes that you've made at Huber and, and you're really having to make tough decisions that, that you know, have really sort of bore fruit in the long term. How do you help people with that sort of grieving around saying, we're not going to do these other things, we're going to focus on our core? Yeah, it's it's not an easy thing, Pete, and and I think you know just using Huber as an example, uh, and and frankly, this you know some of this predates my time there, but we we used to be a commodity player, mm-hmm. right? We would uh, compete at the lowest level, most basic, and it was a product that was good and competed on price and by us versus the other, and there was no real differentiation. There was no no real value add to the end customer relative to other products out there. And one of the, the CEOs at, at the time uh, had some some good foresight and, and noticed, hey, well, we're playing in a commodity space, but we're not set up to win there. I mean, we've got <laughs> subscale assets. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, you don't have to read too many business cases to learn that's a recipe for, you know, potential failure. So he, he laid out a challenge uh, to the business, said, look, if you can't be number one or two in your space, however you define that space, then we probably have to move on from this business because we're not going to sit here and just you know watch the, the the car drive into the wall. To your point, it was a real tough cultural shift. Right? You had people that just desperately believe this is the right business model and we were successful. And why why change if it's not broke? Don't fix it. And um, you know the the leadership around the business galvanized and said, no, we're gonna we're gonna try and be different and we're gonna try and create highly engineered products that solve problems for builders. And we're going to charge a premium for it, and we're going to take a different view on on how we go to market, and that will, uh, you know, be our strength. And, and we're able to do that with our subscale assets because of the economics that come along with a specialty uh, producer setup. So, for the company at the time, you had sort of two groups of people. You had people that jumped on board, and and again, it wasn't automatic. You have to build a vision for them. You have to let people know why that direction is the right direction. And what are the the benefits of going that way? And and you'll get some portion of the audience to kind of to bite and and follow you. But to be honest, it's it's tough when you talk about letting go of baggage. Um, sometimes that for for a company uh, means you have to let go of some people because they just can't get on board with it. And you you do need good alignment. You do need. Um, a, a good culture and a rallying support behind those directions if you want to be successful. 
And, you know, some people self-select out of those situations, I would assume, you know, in a school context, right, that's in the form of, of parents, right? They might disagree with the direction or disagree with where you're going. But I think, you know, trying to galvanize around what you think is that vision mission, what you think is the right direction or North Star for the, for the school and, you know, really putting a good shoulder behind it. So it's a little bit of uh, um, energizing the audience and getting them, you know, uh, to understand what that end goal is and to get excited about it. And and I think once you get that excitement, that goes a long way. And it's unfortunate, but not everyone will go along for the ride. But that's okay, too. It's just a necessary part of, of that development. And what was the end result of you making that shift as a company? Yeah, I mean, fast forward to t- today, mm-hmm. right? The, the company is, uh, you know, a leader in its industry. We're thought of as being a visionary in solving problems for builders. We're, we're uh, one of the innovation leaders in a what would otherwise be a, considered maybe a stodgy space. <laughs> uh, we've got a number of patents across a number of products. Even though we are selling premium products, you know, we've got some of the highest market shares of, of products out there. So, you know, we've been able to translate that into a lot of success. We've been built a lot of loyalty with with our customer base, with our channels, and you know, from a you know pure finance perspective, you know, we've we've been able to grow the business from you know just a decade ago it was about two hundred fifty million dollars in revenue, and you know, fast forward to t- today, last year we did about a billion eight. Um, and none of that was through acquisition, right? A lot of that was mm. was through just organic growth, and some of that was acceleration in the housing market. But a lot of it was just the quality of earnings we've been able to develop on the backs of our our shift to uh, that specialty model and our ability to innovate and solve problems. Where does that faith come from? You have this strategy that you 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 believe is the right thing. You're going to implement it, and then sort of ten years later, like you're you're living it and going, "Wow, that worked." How did you deal with the doubt that I'm sure that came throughout that process about, is this the right thing to do as you are pivoting in a different direction? Yeah, it's, you do need some faith a little bit. Um, You have to be careful not to chase your tail, right? So Mm. as the wind shifts, you can't student body left, student body right. You have to have a little bit of faith in some direction and give it some time. And that goes to that patience uh, comment earlier. Sometimes you don't know. You do your homework, you think it through, um, you make sure that the reasoning is sound and you you hopefully have some very good justifications and mm-hmm. some good guidance around you, people that will challenge it and challenge you on the thinking end of it so that as you execute it, you, you can go into it with some, um, you know, uh, with some inertia uh, and, and some confidence. So, and the other thing people think about, you know, it's not linear, mm-hmm. right? So that success I talked about was not an easy ride. It's a yeah. bit of a roller coaster, and you need that fortitude so that when the times are tough, and and you know there will be you know points along the path where you start scratching your head, saying, "Oh, you know, is this the right thing to have done?" Yeah. Again, you fall back on that homework. You fall back on that you know the thought process you you and, and time you spent up front creating that strategy, and that can kind of you know help you through those darker darker mm-hmm. periods. But it, it's definitely not linear, and there's definitely some times of and – that, and that's where you want to have an audience and a, and a group around you, a culture around you that, that just believes in, in what you're doing and is committed yeah. to it. Because you do have to have that resiliency to fight through those tough times. At the time of recording, right, we're recording this in early March, like we haven't 
finalize a strategy for the future or, any, or anything like that. But what's been really interesting is just the process that we're going through and the amount of time that's been taken sort of behind the scenes to to really gather information, use our the data that we receive through our um, accreditation server that went, went to all the families to really sort of unpack that, um, sort of ha- speak to individuals. It's just been, I've been really impressed by sort of the energy and the the time commitment from our trustees, including a, like a, a, you know, a Saturday workshop a, while, a few weeks ago. And I'm, I'm talking about being energized. I'm quite energized through, very energized through this process and just the, the amount of time and thought that's been going into it and sort of no final decision or anything's being made as we're recording this. But I'm just trying to learn as much about strategy because I, this is an area I thought I knew a bit about and, and just having now working with sort of strategy ninjas like you and others, people on our board, it's like, man, there's so much to learn. And, you know, and I've been reading a bunch and just really trying to sort of go even deeper than, than I have in the past. And it's been really rewarding and just really thinking through sort of many questions that uh, and and being, I guess, quite deliberate about, you know, what is our mission, vision and values and how is that guiding our future, because it's very easy to go, well, we want to do this. Well, how's that help us fulfill a mission, vision, and values? Well, it doesn't, but it's really cool. It's just like, well, let's stay focused. And that's, it's a new thing for me because schools, generally they're a mile, mile wide and an, an inch deep, right? And, and that isn't great for our kids. And so, because, you know, how do you make that much deeper so then the experience for our kids is, is more powerful and parents know when they're signing up. Yeah. And it's, it, it's a good point. And look, just being on the board, we talked about my, you know, what, what brought me here, but I think what, what keeps me here is it is a very humbling experience. This is a very talented group, as you mentioned of parents and from all walks uh, and backgrounds and, you know, being able to, to share with a group like that, who's got very, you know, altruistic, well-intentioned, you know, uh, efforts um you know it's it's been fun and to your point there's been a lot of effort behind the scenes to think through these things and to to do the right homework uh because i think you know it's hard to develop a strategy you can have a vision and mission um but if you haven't done your homework and know who you are and what your strengths are it's hard to really develop that that strategy because you know we may we may want and wish to be certain things but if you don't have the foundational elements to, to be successful there you have to be honest with yourself and, and figure out, you know, what is, given who we are, what is our best path forward? Yeah, especially because, you know, for the last two years, we've all been in this sort of washing machine, just sort of spinning around. And then we're sort of, someone's opened the door and you're sort of falling out going, well, what's the future look like? You know, because it, the, the landscape is different. And right. we've all been sort of tumbling around and, you know, trying to be really clear about sort of what our vision is. But also it is a new opportunity to say, hey, like the world is different. It's fundamentally different than it was two years ago. What happened in the past doesn't necessarily is good for our future, similar to what you were saying before. Yep. Thank you so much for all your time. Now we're going to move into the rapid fire questions. Uh, And so I'm going to ask you a few questions just to conclude our conversation. So what is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? (laughs) It's a a good question. Unfortunately, unlike my uh, children and wife, I'm not a huge reader. Um, But there are a couple. One that's uh, a little bit more on the fun side uh, is a a book by a, a 
former Sports Illustrated writer. Uh, his name is Rick Riley, and he wrote a book called Who's Your Caddy, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, you know, it's a, a light read. It's it's interesting for those who like golf, and it's it's about him and and his efforts to really wiggle his way into being a caddy, knowing <laughs> nothing about the game of golf, and you know he's able to do this with um, an amazing list of people, really uh, professional golfers and celebrities, and you know he each chapter is him talking about his experience caddying for that individual and lessons learned in there so it, it's a lighthearted read i i recommend that to people especially if they like the game of golf and um maybe on a more serious note there's a we do at our company occasionally we'll do these you know global conferences and sometimes we'll get speakers and we we had a, a guy come in one time very interesting in, in his roots and beginnings a fellow by the name of Dan Thurman and he wrote a book off balance on purpose. And, you know, it's, it's a really simple but interesting concept. We spend so much of our lives trying to be in balance. Mm. We stress ourselves out trying to be the perfect parent, perfect worker, perfect, you know, you name it. Yes. Uh, and it's frustrating because, you know, we all have this feeling, right? Sometimes you feel like you're hitting it on all cylinders at work, but you're dropping a few balls at home or vice versa. And, you know, his theme is, you know, we need to stop chasing balance what we need to do is embrace being imbalanced and and how do you live in that world of imbalance and yeah. and, and make it work for you you've mentioned golf what are some other things you love doing in your free time it was pretty pretty simple for me i mean i do enjoy golf but really anything outdoors right it's hiking just being outside and, and spending time with with the family i mean both jen and i you know working and working so much that when we do have uh, free time, downtime, we like to hang out with the kids and, and find different things to do. And, um, you know, it's pretty simple that way. We like to, you know, travel together and, and explore that way. So um, uh, we, we understand that uh, we only got a few more precious years yeah. with them before they're off and launched and, you know, trying to take full advantage of that. It's interesting you say that. Ruby just turned 12 and, you know, we have this ritual where we go and get donuts for her birthday. Uh, like for, We used to do that before school when we were in Illinois and we continue to do it. And we just, on my phone, we have all our photos and I was just looking, we we're looking at photos of when the day she was born. And I was thinking to myself, man, we only have six more birthdays before she's launched, right? Before she's off to college. And so it was a bit jarring thinking, man, we've only got six of these left. Like it's, I've, you know, just felt like her childhood would last forever. And now I'm like, <laughs> man, it's, it's moving so quick. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? The one thing I'd say I have always had, a, had an interest in but never really followed up on is I think I'd like to learn how to fly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, I heard you talking earlier about flying. And, you know, even as a young kid, I always, you know, thought I'd be flying a fighter jet pilot, you know, or flying jets and Obviously, never uh, got to go down that path, but I but I've always been intrigued with with learning to fly. Um, I know there's some places around here that uh, I could do that. Just haven't got around to pushing myself in that direction. I've got to tell you a little bit of a story. One of the, my long wish lists is to do uh, is to learn how to fly a helicopter. And so I had an introductory lesson when in Wisconsin when I was in living in Illinois, and it was it was a bit terrifying because it was a, a trainer. It had no 
windows. It was like very much like mash, right? Like the guys <laughs> sitting next to me, there's no door. I've got this seatbelt on. We're flying like, I don't know, only a thousand feet sort of above um, Kenosha. Beautiful. Like it's right on the lake there. And it was, and then there was storm was coming in, like one of these sort of like summer storms in, in sort of the Midwest. And then he's just like, oh, you know, we'll just land now. And the, like, the rain's coming. It was actually quite scary. <laughs> um, it was, uh, so I haven't sort of pursued it, but I, I, there's something I would love to do is just learn how to fly either a helicopter or a plane as well. Um, what is the, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Hmm. I think a lot of us are tainted by maybe recent history, last couple of years. And for me, it's really been centered around trying to appreciate things a little bit more. Um, I think far too often for all of us, and, and COVID's a shining example, but there's others, uh, where we wait for tragedy or, or some negative event to make us appreciate what we have. You know, we, we, we just went through a, a pretty tough environment, but, um, you know, I've, I've tried to continue to exercise that, that line of thinking, which is, you know, how, how do you be more appreciative in the moment um, and, and not wait for those instances of, of negativity to sort of, you know, cause you to look back or look at things in, in that reflective way. So I'm trying to do more of that. Um, and I know, you know, I think I've heard you talk about in, the, in, in, uh, in the past about, you know, daily putting together a list of things that you're thankful for. And, and I think there's a lot of power to that. And I've never, I, I haven't evolved to that step uh, where I'm writing it down and, and perhaps I should, but I think it's a great discipline for people just to reflect on, you know, the positives, um, you know, last two years have been fairly negative globally. Right. And, you know, we've all dealt with different things and, um, I just think it's, it's a healthy way to, to start a day or, or insert into your day. Um, and the other thing is just laughter, right? Laugh, find ways to laugh, whether it's listening to a comedy channel on a radio or, you know, spending time with your kids and, and, you know, goofing around a little bit as opposed to, you know, being serious and, you know, life got awful serious, awful quick. And, you know, we've seen a lot of division, uh, you know, globally and certainly within the, the community and country. So, you know, just finding additional ways to find some humor in the day has, has been helpful. That's awesome. And last question, what inspires you? I would say people, and it doesn't need to be, you know, superstars. I'm inspired by faculty and staff here. I'm inspired by first responders. Mm. I'm inspired by people I work with who face family challenge uh, and, and overcome them. I mean, there's, I find inspiration, in, you know, all around me. You just kind of have to look for it. The more you do that, I think it helps on that other element of just appreciating, you know, things and, and shows you that you don't need to be a superhero to, to do cool things and great things. And, you know, if you find inspiration in, in the average, sometimes um, it makes it more real, makes it more attainable and uh, sometimes helps you digest it. So for me, it's, you know, I, I wish I could point to one thing, but I, I do find inspiration all around me with, with, you know, different people. Wonderful. Well, Kirk, thanks so much for all your time today. It's been such a pleasure chatting and thanks so much for all you do for me, but also for our school. Well, thanks for all you do and thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org. <laughs>